to turn this morning to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and uh, it's good to be back with you. Last week, Dr. Getch was here. Interestingly enough, I was preaching in Canada because he couldn't go to Canada, and he was preaching here because I couldn't be here. <laughs> and uh, so I was at the Greater Vancouver Baptist Church preaching for Brother Gordon Connor, who's been there. Uh, this year will be 40 years. And uh, it's a joy to be in that church every time we go. And uh, and yet it's always good to be home. I love to preach here. And I love to be uh, a part of what God's doing. And I want to stay faithful at doing that. And uh, and so we rejoice the fact that we could be here. And uh, we thank God for his word this week and for his work in us. And now today really is part of taking not just today's sermon, but what we've gathered this week and working it out with fear and trembling so that others could see so that others will believe. And so as we come today, we come to another point of Scripture. Uh, I preached the beginning part of this message, or the beginning part of this chapter, rather, last Sunday night. It's a message that I preached here several weeks ago called Don't Be Discouraged about Samuel. And today I'm going to preach the next few verses about him uh, being taken by God and and brought to Jesse's house when he's getting ready to anoint David. And uh, so we're going to talk through this. And, and this morning's message, if you have an outline, is entitled Just the Facts. And uh, try not to be, you know, too overly dramatic, but uh, Dragnet was a show that some of you old timers remember. Just the facts, man, just the facts. And uh, so I try to appeal to the older audience as we get older in our own age. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, we want to read uh, 13 verses this morning just to remind us of the context. The Bible says in verse 1, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee, and say, I am come to to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. Thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. That's a key phrase. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. Now what you need to understand is you could say, Why did he say that? Why were the elders of the town saying to Samuel, Comest thou peaceably? Well, Samuel is the last judge in a line, a long line of judges. And as he comes into a city, whenever a judge came into the city, it was normally because he was going to judge the people. When he came unannounced, it was because there was something wrong in the city and God was going to pronounce judgment on that. So as they see the prophet Samuel coming, who is not just a prophet, I mean, he is the man of God. Um, now you see him coming and all of a sudden they're kind of scared. They're a little worried. Oh my goodness, what's God going to do to our city? What have we done now? So that's where you get the question, comest thou peaceably? And he assures them, yes, I'm coming peaceably. And to sacrifice unto the Lord. The end of verse 5 in the middle, I'm sorry, in the middle of verse 5, sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or in the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 
And Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Say, who is that? That's the second oldest. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made uh, Shammah uh, to pass by. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. By the way, that's the third in line. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him, for we'll not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready, and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up. And went to Ramah. You know the wonderful thing about the Bible. Is that it reveals everything we need to know about God. Who he is. By the way and who he isn't. The other thing that the Bible reveals to us in detail. Is who we are. And who we are not. In fact when you read it carefully. God's word tells us more about ourselves. Than we really care to know. And all of it. Everything it tells us about God. And everything it reveals about ourselves. Is absolutely true. I can say that not because I am absolutely true, but because God's word is true. And it's been tried in the fire seven times. It's been perfected by God. And you can't separate a perfect God from a fallible world. word. It has to be infallible, just like God is. It is absolutely, as it is in truth, the word of God. They tell me that a fact is a reality um, or an actuality or a truth. When you're talking about the facts, you're talking about something that's real. For instance, two, they tell me, plus two is four. That's a reality. That's an actuality. You can't take two oranges and have two more oranges and have any more or less than what you have. That's the reality, right? Now you say, you laugh. But I talked to, I was telling somebody yesterday, I talked to a man one day that said to me as he learned that I was trying to get into the word of God and talk to him about the gospel, that there's no such thing in the world as absolute truth. And I used that simple illustration and that man got mad at me. This is an engineer who, by the way, deals in facts, right? Now that's a little ironic, but that's what a fact is, is that it is an absolute reality. Saul has been rejected by God as king. And Samuel was so discouraged that the Lord had to rebuke him and remind him that there was already a plan in place for a new king. We know him as David. Now we know the story. Samuel is discouraged. God comes and says, how long are you going to sit here in your discouragement? Don't be discouraged. I have something for you to do. Remember, I'm in control of all things. I have all the circumstances in control. You have no idea what's beyond this, but I do. So I want you to do something. Get up, take your horn of oil, and go, and I will show you my plan. By the way, isn't it a blessing that God always shows us his plan? It may not be when we want it. It may not be how we want it, but he is always faithful, and he always shows us what he wants us to do. And so Samuel goes down to Bethlehem, and as he comes in, as he's greeted with the wondrous, what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm here to sacrifice. God always has a way of getting his will done. He had that planned out also. So he brings a heifer and he goes to the sacrifice. He says, by the way, sanctify yourselves and call Jesse and tell him to sanctify his family to come. Now he comes and uh, Jesse comes and we know by the text that the first one and the only one to come is Eliab. And I want you to notice that very carefully. Eliab comes in. The Bible says that he brought in Eliab. Notice what it says and how it says it. 
It says in verse 6. Now it says in verse 5, sanctify Jesse and his sons. Verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab. Surely the Lord's anointed. Now that tells you that Eliab was the only one there. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says in verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab. So he was the only one there. Why? Because as far as Jesse was concerned, if anyone's going to get anointed, it's going to be Eliab. He's the one, surely, that God had chosen. And Samuel, the Bible says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. So both Jesse and Samuel were on the same page. The most qualified of my sons to be the next king is going to be Eliab. Well, the Bible says that didn't work. So Jesse then calls Shammah. Well, he comes and the Lord says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, not this one also. And so then what does he do? Then he calls Shammah. So he's bringing them in one by one because Jesse has already a set plan. Sometimes our plans are not God's plans, right? And so now Samuel goes, okay, let me just, what's going on? So he prays in seven sons. And so let me just, let me just say this. I personally believe that at this point, Samuel is discouraged again. Are here all thy children? Are you telling me that God didn't see all these and this is it? And and, and you kind of get the sense that he's kind of taken back. I've been sitting here for all this time. The heifer's now burnt toast. All of this is happening and we still don't have a king. Did I come down here for naught? Are these all thy children? As if Jesse didn't bring them all. And by the way, Jesse didn't. Do you know why? Because Jesse didn't think David was qualified. Jesse didn't think he deserved it. For whatever reason, David was left keeping the sheep. The Bible says in verse 11, And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. Behold, he's a shepherd. He's keeping the sheep. And Jesse said, Well, guess what? We're not sitting down. The word down there isn't around. We're not going to sit down and eat until he comes. Well, then we better hurry up. As I want to eat, right? So now he finally brings Jesse, or David in. And the Bible says, uh, the Bible says he was ready uh, and with all a beautiful countenance and goodly to look on. Verse 12, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So at first, Samuel and Jesse speak. God says, no. David comes in and God says, yes, that's the one. The one that you didn't think qualified, the one that you looked differently at, that's the one that I'm choosing. It may not be your choice, but it is God's. It's interesting that if left to Samuel and Jesse, they would have never chosen David. For whatever reason, you can fill in the blank. They would have never chosen David. Jesse didn't think David was qualified or eligible, so he never summoned him to come. And when the parade of candidates was finished, Samuel must have been puzzled. When David arrived, arrived, I want you to notice the favorable impression he made on Samuel and keep in mind that he was just a young boy. The Bible says that he was ruddy. It means that he had a healthy complexion and was good looking with bright eyes. The Jewish culture has a lot to do with the eyes. And as they look on the eyes, they see pleasing or not pleasing. And David was pleasing to the eyes. And his eyes were pleasing. As soon as young David walked into Samuel's presence, the Lord immediately identified him as God's choice to be the next king. Now keep in mind why he was, while he was, why he was God's choice. Why? Not because of his striking physical features. He, he obviously was not like Eliab. Because notice what it says in verse 6. It came to pass when there, came, when there were come 
that he looked on Eliab and said, surely he was absolutely sure this is the Lord's anointed. But look at verse seven. The Bible says that God said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance, nor the height of his stature. So though we may think that because God describes David in a certain way, that it's the same as Eliab and it's not, it's a totally different way. By the way, God was not looking on the outward. God gives us the description of David, but only in contrast to Eliab, Shammah, and and his brother. In fact, God says in verse 7, I want you to know what I'm actually seeing. I'm seeing his heart. And I'm seeing a different part than you see. He was a young boy, according to chapter 13 and verse 14, that was after God's own heart. And his heart was to make him, according to chapter 15 and verse 28, a better man than Saul. Now, in a courtroom, the judge and the jury are interested in one thing about the case, just the facts. Though a lot more trumping up happens in a courtroom, that's what they are supposed to be interested in. A fact, then, as we have said, is an actuality. It's the truth. When when given the facts, then they make a right judgment about the case. They're not supposed to take into consideration anything but the truth. In fact, when a witness stands up, they put their hand on a Bible, they raise their right hand, and they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They just are considering the facts. Now, in our case, God has given us his word to show us what reality looks like or the facts. And to be honest, at times, our reality and God's doesn't match up. So the word of God has to bring us back into the reality of truth, what actually is. So this morning, I want us to consider some facts that God reveals through this passage. I want you to take your outlines if you have one this morning. And I want us to learn, first of all, some facts about us. Some facts about us. Now, based on the scripture, God tells us a lot of things. The Bible says in verse 7, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. Notice this, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now, the phrase man looks, that that Hebrew phrase man looks means that he considers, he inspects, and he regards and respects based on that inspection, uh, all on what the eyes see. And so when you think about that in light of your life and really in the light of society, you come away with a couple of things that you have to reason with. And these are just the facts according to the word of God and according to what we know in our life to be true. Letter A, we put a high value on outward appearance, don't we? Huge value on outward appearance. We're a society consumed with how we appear. Just look at social media and the appearance, by the way, of others. Sadly, based on our own perception of reality, we pass judgment. That is, our own perception or set of facts, we can pass judgment. And it affects us, doesn't it? The Bible says in James chapter 2, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, listen, with respect of persons. For if there come unto you an assembly, listen, listen to how God describes, a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, there come in also a poor man in violent raiment. And you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, um, in a good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves? Watch and become judges of evil thoughts. God says, look, if this situation happens and you're judging someone based on the way they look, you're not seeing the facts. You're not seeing the reality. That means that your judgment is fallible. That you are, you, what you're doing is you're putting a huge emphasis 
on what you see and you're calling a man good or bad or preferred or unpreferred based on how they're dressed, based on how they wear their hair, based on the way that they look. The emphasis on our physique or style is largely influenced by our desire for acceptance, which means secondly, the reason that we care about our appearance so much is because we long to be accepted by others. Why is that? Because we put a really high value on outward appearance. Listen to what the Bible says, Ephesians 5 and verse 5. For this you know that no whoremonger, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no man, now listen to these words. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of men. Be not, be not partakers with them. What's that saying? That means that there is a spirit in the world that takes a lifestyle, justifies the lifestyle, and many times people who are associated with that lifestyle will try to bring you into that lifestyle. The Bible specifically uses the phrase vain words so that there's obviously a paradigm of false reality where people will try to draw us in and God says, look, you can't be partakers of those things and don't let them deceive you into that. Now watch this. The Bible says in Psalm 39 and verse 5, Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, listen to this word, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. All right? Then it goes on to say, Surely every man walketh in a vain, what? Show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. What's he talking about? He's talking about living a superficial life. Based on what people perceive, right? So if I perceive the rich man in the parable that Jesus gave as someone who had silos and barns and he decides to break all those down and build bigger, what am I to perceive? Man, that guy's got money and that money is awesome. I want to be his friend. The Bible talks about that in the book of Proverbs. The Bible talks about that if you have money, you have no problems getting friends. Right? So no wonder our society is bent on having some money. Or at worst, looking like we do. You know, there's a lot of people in our culture today that are in debt up to their eyeballs, but they don't want people to see the debt. They just want them to see the perception of wealth. Why? Because we care. And God says, look, that's a vain show. So don't let people deceive you in that vanity. It was Jesus who talked about not laying up for yourselves treasures on earth. And yet we've managed to put a high value on people's opinion of us on this earth. And listen, especially as Christians. Second Corinthians 10, 7. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ. What's he trying to do? He's trying to devalue the outward appearance and talk about the true identity that we have in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 10.10 10, for his letters. Now, and now, by the way, this is a Christian, a Christian's viewpoint or a church's viewpoint of the apostle Paul. Now you talk about valuing an appearance. Second Corinthians 10.10 10 says for his letters, say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Even in a church, the preacher was being judged by the way he presented himself. You see, what does that tell you about us? It means that we put a huge value on outward appearance. Several years ago, I did some research on the phrase, our Sunday best. Used to be said, man, you go to church, you need to wear your Sunday best. And that was the standard, right? 
we're going to God's house. You better dress up. Why? Because God's worth it. And we'd say, wear your Sunday best. Wear your Sunday best. Every year for Easter, my mom got me a different color suit every year. Every year. I still remember the white suit, big butterfly collar, the light baby blue shirt. And, 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 and my dad's white leisure suit was just, ooh, I just don't even want to think of my dad. And the white shoe, white patent leather shoes. And I was like, you know, at the time you're like, man, dad's smoking. He's like right in there. Now you're like embarrassed to show any pictures of it, right? You're like, I don't know what was going on in the 70s, but it wasn't good. It just wasn't good. And, and, and you know, we get paraded up. Let's all take our pictures. We stand up there and do all that good stuff. I researched the phrase Sunday best, where it comes from its origin. Do you realize, now, by the way, it's not because I don't believe in dressing out of respect for the Lord, so I need to temper this, Okay. But because I wanted to know where the phrase originated and why. And I was very sad when I found out. It was very sad. During the 1800s, as people were getting saved and churches were filling up with converts, like usual, there were all kinds of people from different social classes. Of course, there were people who had nicer and newer clothing, who by no fault of their own dressed for the occasion of going to church to the, to the church house. They, 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 they were just doing what they knew was best for themselves. But there were also those who weren't of such means. They didn't have the money, but would save up and go out of their way to dress their best to be accepted with upper social classes in their congregations. Can you imagine? A brand new baby Christian goes to church for the very first time after they get saved. Preacher leads them to Christ. He comes in and all these people sitting in here and they're all in nice clothes. They're all just, you know, dressed to the nines. And he doesn't have two and a half, much less nines to dress in. And what does that make him feel like? Now watch, we, we put a high price on feelings. And without the power of the Holy Spirit of God and the grace of God, knowing who we are and we are who we are by the grace of God, peer pressure is an awful thing. And to sit in that midst and to count yourself as unworthy because of the way you're dressed, what does that tell you? It tells you that as a kind, a human kind, that we put a huge emphasis on the outward appearance. And so they would do whatever was necessary to go out and to purchase clothing so that they could be accepted in the house of God. Now, sadly, this could very easily turn the gathering of God's people into a display of pomp and circumstance rather than the power of the Holy Ghost. Very quickly. Perhaps... There are some Christians that try harder to try to fit in with the world because in reality, we are not like this world. In fact, we know it and deep inside, deep inside of us, our flesh doesn't like being seen as different. Why is it hard for a Christian to stand out in society? Because we don't want to be seen as a weirdo. Why is it we always feel to, we need to give in to what everybody else is doing because we don't want to be the outsider? We don't want to be seen as, however you say it, the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, we have a huge value on how we're perceived. Huge. And by the way, I'm, I'm not preaching about this today, but that doesn't mean that we should be careful how we're perceived. But what it does mean is that I should not cave in to some whimsical audition of acceptance by the world standard. Or worse, by a Christian standard. Or another Christian standard. The standard has already been set. His name is Jesus Christ. So, 
as I look at the facts of this passage, Samuel gets told a lesson, another lesson. The first part of the lesson was, don't be discouraged. Get up. I've got something for you to do. I'm in control of all things. Now he gets down there to do it, and he goes, oh, surely the Lord's anointed. Now maybe Samuel was just trying to say, hey, look, one step and done. We can get out of here now. I can anoint, get back to Ramah. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is he misjudged based on something that was natural. I want What I see is the best case going forward. I saw Saul, who was head and shoulders above all the rest. Now I see Eliab, and man, does he ever fit the bill? He's the one. No, actually, he's not the one. Well, then the two is the one. No, the two's not the one. What about the three? No, the three's not the one. Seven of them are not the one. Okay, then I'm stumped. Are these not all your kids? Actually, no, there's one that I thought was not worthy and he doesn't really fit the bill. So I left him with a sheep. All right, well, go get him because we're not going to sit down to eat until you bring him. So he brings him and God says, see, Samuel, this is the one. It's the one after God's own heart. It's the one that is, and it's the heart that makes him the better man. That's the one that I want because I'm not like you, which brings us to the second fact. It's the facts about God. See, the Bible tells us all about us, and sometimes we don't like what it reveals, but it also tells us about God, and sometimes we don't even like that. The Bible says in verse 7, but the Lord said unto Samuel, look, not in his countenance or in the height of his stature, because I've refused him. Notice what it says. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. There's no way in one sermon we could look at all the facts about God. But we do want to make sure that we take note of the ones that are present before us here. And when the Bible says that the Lord seeth not as man is, the first thing you need to remember is letter A. God is nothing like us. And praise the Lord for that. He's not impressed necessarily with the way I present myself to the public for the wrong reasons. So the Bible says in Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he not said, shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, shall he not make it good? God's nothing like us. The Bible says in Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried as a buckler to all those that he's a buckler to all those that trust him. Deuteronomy 32, 4, he is the rock. The, his work is perfect for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without equity, just and right is he. In those three verses, we can completely establish the fact that God is not like man. Amen. He is perfect in all of his ways. Isaiah 55 and verse eight, which means his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So to this point, everything about God is far better than mankind. Now, this is the cool part. That's why the psalmist was so taken back when he said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? How, how can such a great and perfect and holy God even think about us in our vain show? And yet he does. He does. Because God is nothing like man, then he sees things that we can't see. So when we look at the facts that God is not like man, secondly, he sees and knows the heart, which is what man cannot do. All right? Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us about it. For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, none of us. I can't see into the heart of you sitting there. I can't see and say, this is what you're thinking about. This is what you're feeling. When the specific verse is read, I can't even look into my own children's uh, eyes and say, this is how you're feeling. Now, this is interesting to me and a bit ironic. And I want you just to 
put a bookmark right there, and I'm going to step aside and say this. Do you remember when David went to the battle of Elah? And he showed up with the victuals that his dad said, go and, and check on your brothers in the battle, right? Remember when David got out and he heard Goliath, and then he started asking around, what's to be done for the man that slays this man? Do you remember who spoke up? Eliab. Eliab said, listen, I know the naughtiness of thine heart. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the very pride that we live in, we think that we can see in somebody else's, but we cannot. We absolutely cannot. Why? Because we are not like God. Notice what it says in your notes in Jeremiah 17, 10. Though the Bible says, who can know it? God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You see, it's actually God that sees and knows the heart. People can only see what we want them to see. We would call that our reputation. But God sees who we really are. We would call that our character. He sees our thoughts. Always. He sees our motives in all things. He sees our inner character, which is why the word of God, listen, is so powerful. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the thoughts, I'm sorry, uh, and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Listen to verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, speaking of Christ, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I, as hard as I could try, and on my best day walking in the Spirit, I still can't see your heart. I can't. Even if I were to die and go to heaven, I could still not see your heart. Why? Because I'm not like God. But God can. No matter where I am in a given day, no matter whom I'm talking to, no matter what I'm looking on the internet, no matter what movie I'm watching, no matter what song I'm listening to, no matter what my condition may be in traffic, no matter what my condition may be in front of my boss, no matter what my situation may be concerning my finances or my family, no one can see my heart but God does. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows what I'm trying to plan. Listen, God knew from from 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, when he told Samuel, get up, stop pouting, get down to Bethlehem, he knew exactly what was in Samuel's heart. He knew what was in Samuel's heart when he said, look, this is the anointed of the Lord, when Eliab walked out. He knew what it was in his heart when Shammah and, and his brothers walked out. He knew all of it. But he also saw what was in David's heart, which is what Samuel couldn't see. The Bible says, look not on the countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Which tells you what he sees, that's how he levels his judgment. Letter C, he judges mankind by the contents of what he finds in the heart. Samuel's being taught a lesson in assumption of outward appearance. The phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover, would apply here. <laughs> He looked at Eliab, boom, done. And it's just interesting to me, put a bookmark in there since we're talking about irony. It's interesting to me that Samuel, when God told Israel, choose a king, that they chose a man that was head and shoulders above all the rest. Now Samuel's doing the same thing. 
It's a little reverse, isn't it? The judge is so, or the prophet is supposed to influence the people. And now because he's in an emotional state, the people have influenced the prophet. Now Samuel's trying to do the same thing. And God says, no, Samuel. Boy, you're sure lucky I'm not like man. Samuel, you're sure lucky that I'm God and not a man that I should lie, neither the son of man that I should repent. I've not changed my plan in one way based on how you feel I'm sticking with my plan. There's a man after my heart. He's a better man than Saul. I'm anointing him. Now you do what I'm telling you to do. Anoint him with oil. Why? Because I see what you don't see. And based on what I see, I pass judgment. The Bible says in Jeremiah 11 and verse 20, but O Lord of hosts that judges righteously, how can you judge righteously? You can't unless two things. One, you're God and two, you know everything. You can't judge a perfect judgment all the time without having all the facts. Praise Jesus that he has all the facts. He knew what was in man, the Bible says about Jesus. O Lord of hosts that judges righteously, that trieth the reins and the heart. Let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I revealed my cause. Second Chronicles 6 and verse 30. Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and render unto every man according to all his ways. Listen, whose heart Thou knowest, for thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men. That's why Proverbs 17 and verse 3 says, The finding pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but it's the Lord that trieth the hearts. Let me ask you a question. What does he see in your heart this morning? What has he been seeing? Because you understand that God doesn't need to have a DVD player or satellite TV in order to see what's going on. He doesn't need that. He's God. Actively, he sees all of our hearts right now. Actively, he knows what he wants to do in your life, and he knows whether you want him to accomplish that or not. So he sees the heart, and he judges by those things that he sees. So we know the facts about us, and sometimes they're not very pretty, and we know the facts about God, and sometimes they're not even any prettier because we know that he sees the facts about us, which leaves us thirdly, and I'm done, I want to talk about the facts of our life today. The facts of our life today. Well, let me just preface this by saying, what a privilege and mercy of God to be reminded of our need to grow out of our old ways. <laughs> to say, you know what, Lord, today I came to church and I, I have looked at people this week, maybe even today, I have, I have looked at people and I have passed some kind of judgment based on what I see or even hear and knowing that I can't really do that anyway. And now you've told me that. Lord, you, you, you've said that I've been more consumed with what people think of me and the food that I eat and the places that I go on social media than I am with what you see in my heart. There are more people that care more about their social media status and their appearance to the whole world than they care about what God sees. And it should be the reverse, right? So let's think about some facts today. I want to try to help you in the last few minutes. Letter A, we need to change our emphasis, don't we? We need to flip the script. Psalm 37 and verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delighted in this way. Okay, God, if you want to flip the script, then I'm going to need your help. I need you to order my steps. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, by the way, I'm so thankful for the word of God, and I hope that you are on a regular basis. Because when the Bible speaks... It speaks of God's opinion about him and us. And we would do well to listen to both. 
listen to what God puts, how he puts the value in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. But let the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price. What does God value? He values meekness. What does he value? What he sees in our heart. That's the idea, is that we need to switch the emphasis. Remember, Jesus said, judge not according to the appearance. John seven twenty four. you can write that down. But judge a righteous judgment. Now, that being said, not only do we need to change our emphasis, letter B, we must, humble, we must be humble enough to ask God for help. What does that mean? Interestingly enough, in Psalm 139, verse 23, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. What's, what's David writing there? He's saying, you know what, Lord? And that whole, that whole passage talks about how God sees and knows my ways he knows my outgoings, my incomings. He knows everything. That being the case, Lord, what you see in my heart, would you show me what's wrong? Would you show me where I have a wrong emphasis? Would you show me where I put a, a greater emphasis on how I'm accepted or judged of others rather than how I'm accepted and judged of you? By the way, let me just say this. If you've been born again, you've already been accepted by the only one that matters. You're accepted into the beloved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone, period. It's not going to matter what your social media status is when you die. It's not going to matter about how many houses you have. It's not going to matter about how much money you have in the bank. It's not going to matter about your preferred parking spot. None of that's going to matter. None of that's going to matter. What's going to matter is what's God's opinion of me? Better, listen, at the day of death, what does he see in my heart? Right? Second Chronicles 16, 9. Now, this is amazing. When we get to the point where we say, God, I, I, don't, I can't even see my own heart because it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So I need to ask you what's wrong. I need to ask you if my heart is right. And, and this, is, this is how God perceives the power of a right heart. Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them, listen, whose heart is perfect toward him now please don't misunderstand the word of god the word perfect there doesn't mean without sin that can't happen okay but what it does mean is what it does mean is wholehearted that god would find complete faith in him that our hearts listen would be a heart after his own heart and god says on the behalf of that guy the person that woman that i find that's like that that's got that kind of faith I'm going to show myself strong on their behalf. What they see as weakness, I see as strength, and that strength is me. And they can in turn not only do what I'm asking, but they can do all things through Christ. Why? Who strengtheneth me. So it's not just about changing our emphasis and saying, God, I'm really incapable of doing that on my own because I'm not like you. I'm not God that can repent not. I need to repent. And if you see something wrong in me, please show me because I want to change. I don't want to look at people and, and judge them on appearance. And I certainly don't want to worry about how they judge me based on my appearance. Thirdly, we must make sure our salvation is by grace through faith alone. See, why do you bring that up again? Well, because there may be someone here that's not saved. There may be someone's here, someone here who, like me, thought they were saved because of X, Y, Z that they had done. But deep down in their residence of the residence of their heart, 
they are not sure if they passed away today, they'd be in heaven. And so God very clearly begins right here that if thou shalt, listen, confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Listen, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made known unto salvation for whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation begins here. And if my heart it's not, if, if the emphasis is all about the show, I want people to think that I'm saved. I want people to perceive that I'm saved. I don't want the church to think that I'm lost. I don't want all of that as pride. All of that is keeping someone from salvation. Do you understand that? So God says, look, first and foremost, your salvation begins at the heart. So the rest of your life has to be the same. Okay. Salvation begins in the heart. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck and write them on the table of thine heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Keep diligently thy heart. Keep thy heart with all diligently. It's all, or with all diligence. It's all about the heart. And if my salvation is not settled in here, then when I stand before God, it will already be settled. The Bible says, here's why. Because God sees the heart. It's not about what I say to someone else. It's about what God sees in here and what I say as a result of that. And so the Bible declares because of hearts that have deceived themselves, because of hearts that are not right before God, as God at the great white throne judgment at the end of all things, when death and hell have given up that which was in them and the earth and all that's under the earth has given up that which is in them and they stand before God. The Bible says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, the de- and death and hell uh, was delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the, uh, uh, in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God says, Every unbeliever, every murderer, every sorcerer, every whoremonger, and every liar shall have a part in this second death. Now, how could we possibly judge all of that? We cannot, but God can. And based on that final judgment, we have to make sure that our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing more and nothing less. Now, if that's how we're starting, God says, that's how I want you to finish. Why? Because I am not a man. Not only am I not a man that I should lie, I'm not a man that sees like you see. I see the heart and what I see matters. You see, God's goal in all of this, uh, in all of this is for our realities to match what God sees and what people see. C.S. Lewis said, anyone who has ever taught or attempted to lead others knows the tendency in all of us toward exaggerating our depth of character while treating leniently our flaws, kind of like a resume. The Bible calls this tendency, by the way, hypocrisy. We consciously, he said, or subconsciously put forward a better image of ourselves than really exists. The outward appearance of our character and the inner reality that only God, we, and perhaps our family members know do not match. But by God's grace, they can why does God address this so that we can fix it? Why would he bring it up if we couldn't be made whole? 
That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He died to make us free from concentrating so much on the outward appearance. Now, if that's the case today, and even if it's mildly the case, shouldn't we go to the Lord and say, Lord, if that's what you see in me, and I don't want it to be there. I want to be like David. I want to be a man after your own heart. I want to be better than what I was when I came in here. Will you please help me? Do you think that if we honestly from our hearts prayed that to God that he would? The answer is yes. So let's do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, uh, Lord, for the poignancy and the sharpness of your word. It says so in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Truth cuts, and sometimes it hurts. But Lord, it always helps. Lord, once we get to the point where we accept your truth as it is in truth, the word of God, that's when it begins to heal. When we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, you took our sin on the cross of Calvary so that we could be dead to sin and live unto righteousness. And because of your stripes, taking our shame, we're healed. So we confess to you today, that we can be better. We can be better people by not emphasizing the outward, but by emphasizing the inward. What you see in us is what matters the most. And God, we pray that what you see would please you. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, I wonder if you have actually heard the Lord speak about something here today. It, it may not be that you're some egregious hypocrite that expects more out of others than you do yourself. I'm, I'm not talking about that. But maybe, maybe you have had a tendency to focus more on the outward instead of the inward. And God says, listen, I want you to, I want you to flip that. I care about the meek spirit. I care about faith. I, I care about my grace and love being shed abroad in your heart because that's what affects the child of God the most. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, the Lord spoke to me personally today about something specific in my heart. I need to do business with him this morning. Would you pray for me as I do? With nobody looking around, if that's you, would you just slip up your hand real quick and put it down? If that's you, would you just slip it up real quick? I can see those hands. Anybody else? I've had a greater emphasis on the outward than the inward. And I need to ask God to help me with that. Anybody else? I see that hand. Somebody else? I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody else? I want to emphasize what God emphasizes more. Maybe it's as simple as this. God spoke to me today about my pride. I know when I read this passage, he spoke about my pride and the value of humility. Maybe you're along those lines. You say, Pastor, that was me. God spoke to me today about my pride and the need for humility. Would you pray for me? Anybody like that? Anybody like me? <laughs> I see those hands. Thank you. Perhaps you're here. And you're not a child of God. You're not saved. If you died today, tragically, you would not be in heaven. And you're pretty sure that you would not be. You're not 100% that heaven's your home. And you'd say, Pastor, I need to know that for sure. I need to know that I'm a child of God. I don't know, but I'd like to know. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you just slip up your hand real quick? Anybody like that? Real quick. There's no shame at Calvary. Nobody in here is judging whether or not you're saved or not, that's God's job alone. But if you were to stand before his white throne today and he were to see into your heart, would he see that Holy Spirit of God that seals us until the day of redemption? 
He that hath not the Spirit of God is none of his. That's his word. Pastor, that's me. I don't know Jesus as my personal Savior. Pray for me. Anybody like that? Anybody at all? All right. We're going to stand in a moment. I'm going to pray. If God's laid anything on your heart and you feel like you need to come to this altar, I would invite you to come. There's something about stepping out. It's a, it's a something, a physical representation of us leaving where we were and laying it down at the altar and asking the Lord for help and not being the same when we go back. Perhaps you need to just do business right where you are in your seat. I don't know, but whatever it is, if God's laid it on your heart, would you follow his leading this morning? Let's stand together with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to pray for us today. Father in heaven, I do lift up these who have raised their hands as God, you have personally spoken to them. And I'm going to ask that you'd help them now. I'm going to ask that you would encourage them in the faith, that you would encourage them to make wise decisions, humble decisions, repentant decisions. Lord, we don't want to be consumed with what the world thinks about us. We want to be consumed with what our God thinks about us. And that's based on what you see. God, we can't even see it ourselves sometimes. So please search us today, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. And if there's any wicked way in us, then God, lead us in the way everlasting. Direct our steps. I pray that we would follow by faith. I pray that you would encourage us. In Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed. If you need to come this morning, come. If not, we won't prolong the invitation. But I do want to ask you to pray. Maybe you want to just take a kneel right there where you are and pray. Maybe you want to come to the altar and pray. I don't know. Whatever God lays on your heart, would you do it this morning? What he sees matters.